Here's a few words of recognition and thanks from Jesse Bond of Southwest Fire Academy. I just wanted to take this opportunity to give a shout out to everyone who makes SFA possible. It's such a big operation with a lot of moving parts and tons of people behind the scenes. And I just want to thank all the full-time and part-time staff, all the instructors and the people that volunteer their time and all the people who want to keep the fire service aggressive. SFA would be nothing if it wasn't for everyone who believes in the vision of what we're trying to accomplish. And I can't articulate enough how much I appreciate the love and support we receive and just so grateful for everyone. Obviously, there's too many people to name, but I want to give a special thanks to Gordon Sarah for everything they've done and continue to do for the school. And on a personal level, I'm so fortunate to have such a massive support group, family and friends and everyone at work. And of course, Kristen for you know putting up with me and being so supportive with everything. And in this podcast, we talk a little bit about health and lifestyle and Kristen's the healthiest and most disciplined person I know. And she pushes me and helps keep me fueled so I can keep moving forward with everything when things are so busy and hectic so i'm just overwhelmed by all the amazing people in my life and just want to thank everyone from the bottom of my heart so thank you so much everyone Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 74 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. The second best thing that an instructor or mentor can do is understand graduated learning, but placed well above that is putting training in context. The majority of the fire service and any academy or course is faced with the hard reality of not being able to legally and or logistically place students in training scenarios that are exact replicas of many emergency incidents. What the most dedicated, progressive, and aggressive do in the face of this is create environments and scenarios that come as close as possible and then are explicit about the limitations and goals. They focus strongly on knowledge, body mechanics, recognition prime decision-making, and habits all with the intended goal of unconscious competency of the fundamentals. You can't train everyone in every structure fire that they may encounter, but you can prepare their bodies and minds to react in ways that will give them, the crews around them, and those that they have sworn to help, the best fighting chance. Here's my chat with Jesse Bond. Okay, so the first thing I think we should cover is putting training in context for people. What we were just talking about previously before we sat down was if you're teaching people firefighting and you're going to be doing it in a metal box or you're going to be doing it in a concrete building versus an acquired structure or in the flashover can, you need to really put in context what they're experiencing because it doesn't always translate. It doesn't often translate directly how a real structure fire operates, but you want to be able to get them in this environment to pull some nuggets out of that, that they can then take away. So why don't we start off with that? Yeah, for sure. So it's definitely a challenge nowadays. I think they're making it more and more difficult as we go through with all the safety. It's so important to go over those things. I think, like you said, there's you get nuggets out of it and you get to experience a little bit of the fire behavior. There's so many factors that you're not experiencing with a real structure fire. So obviously the contents and the fire load and the distance you may have to travel inside and whatnot. It could be quite challenging. You can't have real furniture inside. Yeah, and then the steam production too. So I've noticed even in the Connex or shipping containers or the metal box, that's what I'm referring to, is that 
that conduction of heat. It's like you're you're fighting fire in a frying pan, basically. Right. Yeah. So as soon as you open up that nozzle, even if it's on a street stream versus a fog pattern, you get this massive amount of steam. Right, which is what everyone's so worried about nowadays, right? Not applying water and creating too much steam and kind of hindering ourselves with that. Right, so you try to have that conversation with them and yet they get in the box, they have it on a street stream and they still experience the steam. It's like, well, here's why. So when you get in there and this happens, what we're saying isn't untrue. You would get less steam in a real house. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's it's completely different. Yeah. You mentioned the contents. We can't actually put the stuff in there that's actually going to burn to create the environment that they be in. And propane-fired training buildings versus Class A. The one missing piece, I think, with the Class A is that you can't always put the fire out because logistically, you're going to have to reset the fire every single time for every single person. So 16 times in a day, it's just not logistically possible. So the propane fire buildings come into play where it's a benefit of actually doing the technique, flowing down the hallway, making your way into the room directly onto the fire. You can put it out and just restart it again. Right. Yeah. No, there's definitely benefits to it for for the sets and reps and, and going through and getting those skills dialed in. But it's not the same as real fire and you don't have the same smoke and it's not the same. You don't get the heat. Do you see the way of combining the two then maybe? Like, is it putting smoke barrels in the propane box? Like, how do we bridge this where we can get them to pull it what they need without creating too many training scars? Yeah, I I think that definitely could be a potential. Or start off with propane. I mean, we've been doing that at the school a little bit because we can burn right in the backyard, which is nice, and not create all the smoke for the neighbors. But you have to evolve past that. You start with the propane and get a little bit used to it, and then you go and do class A burns. And like you said, you can't keep putting the fire out you're not getting the same experience, but you're getting the experience of the heat and the smoke and what it's like to be in in a more realistic setting. I think you kind of mentioned before doing search and rescue and not worrying about application of water as much just so we can. And so we've been trying to do that a little bit more where we still get in the class A burns and we get to stretch the hose lines and do the searches and get that same experience, but flowing the water we can do in a, in a parking lot, right? We can do that kind of anywhere. So you start that in the propane and then go to the class A burns and you kind of tie it all together that way. Right. So that's not necessarily knocking a propane fired building or a class A building. It's like, what does each one offer you? So the propane one offers you repeatability. So you take the skill from the parking lot into full gear on air in propane, you have some heat and you can repeat the skill over and over and over and over. So that's what hammers home the technique. And then, like you said, if they go to the class A and they're not necessarily doing that same flowing down the hallway and around the corner and knock the fire right out, at least they know how to do that. And then ideally would be going to acquired structures. So if you could get a real building, but it's tough for departments to get that, their hands on that. I mean, a lot of municipalities won't allow it. Ray McCormick talks about we should be using real furniture and real contents in fires to train for it. And so many people are against it because of the obvious reasons. Even if we get acquired structures, then that's taking it up to that next level. So let's maybe just put that in context for people where people definitely crap on, say, parking lot drilling, right? So I think people are really missing it when they don't think about graduated learning. So you're brand new. You're not going to be just throwing someone into a class A burn and say, go. Just get in there and figure it out. That's And that's very often guys will say, just get in there and figure it and out. And so but. many people do that. And I agree with you. I think there's a lot of benefit to graduating, as you said, with, with the learning. So take forcible entry, for example. Start with a t-shirt and helmet, gloves, and then put on your bunker gear and do those same skills and start with a little bit less of a challenging door and then increasingly make it more difficult as you really start to hone the skills. So once you're good, then you make it more challenging, then go on air and then go do a consumption drill and then start doing forcible entry when your brain isn't 
as effective as it would be if you're just going out fresh. Like you said, a lot of people are against parking lot training and I understand their point, but you want to learn the technique and really have it mastered down before we start making it more challenging. It's also hard to show techniques either on video right, or to post it or it's low zero viz. So how are you supposed to video that unless it's on a tick, but still like, it's, yeah, that's not very real. Yeah. So when you're learning a technique and you know, you lower the pressure in the hose a little bit and then you're in the parking lot in your t-shirt, bunker pants, helmet and gloves, maybe. And then you're in full gear and maybe then you're on air. Yeah. And it's going to prevent people from being turned off by training. If you just throw the hard challenges at them right away and it's difficult and it's hot and there's a lot of those issues, then they're not going to want to go do it again. But if you get them comfortable with the skills, they're going to be more excited about going out. It's always easier to do something that you're good at. You're more excited about doing something that you're good at. So if you get really good at it and then increasingly make it more challenging, people, I think, are going to be volunteering a lot easier to go out and do that training. And and that's more so for career departments and volunteer departments. But I think it's it's smart to do that in the recruit setting or the academy settings as well to ease them into it. And obviously we have to have a level of difficult, but we need to ease them into it. Yeah. Yeah. So the next step then would be like we, we mentioned previously, but just put them all in order for people would be the next one thing would be a propane prop. So repeating the skill over and over and over and over and make sure that they're flowing the whole way and then putting the fire out. Then you would take them to a burn building, a class A building, and that would be your next level. Now the next level would be before real fire, real time, real life would be the acquired structure. You mentioned it briefly. Let's talk more about that. So that's the missing chunk. That's where the training scars, I think, are trying to make, as much as you put things in context, you're trying to leap from a class A burn building to a real life fire. So why can't we get acquired structures? What are the limits and why is that so important? That's the challenge, right? There's the people that want them and there's nothing we can do about it. We can't, either the municipality can't get it. There's the environmental concerns. Obviously, if we're in the middle of a city, we're not going to be able to do that. I mean, we can take what we get. We're lucky at work we'll, where we'll get these houses and we can go do written survival and forcible entry on all the real doors and ventilation. So, I mean, that's, it's a huge benefit, but obviously we can't be lighting up a house that's got a bunch of exposures right next to it. And then how many boot camps do you run a year at SFA? Uh, about 10. Right. So roughly. would you be able to get 10 houses oh, yeah. no, in not, the right location? Not a chance. We have a hard enough time doing class A burns right. with the municipality with some straw and wood everyone seems to be against it. People are worried about the runoff with the water. And it's it's so frustrating because Canada's burning right now and everyone's praying for rain and we're not concerned at all about the runoff. I mean, we've been having forest fires for thousands of years and there's no crazy effects on the environment. I guess the argument would be the, well, I guess even on those forest fires, the towns are burning. Right. Yeah. Someone could say, well, it's trees and grass. It's like, no, 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 no. Cities are burning too. Right. So, absolutely. Right, yeah. Yeah. A lot of these municipalities are not supportive of the training in their municipalities because they're worried about the environmental effects, but we want to be good at the job, right? If our houses are on fire in our municipalities, we want to know what we're doing when we get there. So there's kind of a trade-off. A lot of the time, the councillors and politicians don't think that way. And if they also have, and maybe the departments by default then, also have a safety first mentality. Absolutely. That the safest thing would be to graduate someone through the acquired structure to the real house fire. If you want safety... You want competency. You don't want to be just throwing them in. That would be the safest thing to do. The right, safest thing to do would be to do acquired structures. Yeah, I think so. But the other challenging part is time, right? It's hard enough for departments to get everything trained on that they have to do each year. And now we're just trying to increase all the things that we want, but we have to still do our Enbridge training and 
CEO training and all of those things, which I'm not saying aren't important, but how do you get people out on their own time? Because budget's obviously an issue as well, right? A lot of these departments have to pay their people. So if you're going to graduate firefighters through a slower process, we just don't have the time for that. And the larger the department, how are you supposed to get it? It's hard right, to get everyone exactly. through a class paper. So, how many people do so you I think have the to get con- through? So I think the conversation we're having here is just, just so it's said outright, is that we're not saying we should have acquired structures for everybody. It's just acknowledging the fact that it's a gap because that's not possible for the reasons we just listed. Now you're left with class A cement building concrete, or you're left with connex boxes, shipping containers, propane or fire. Or trailer that or, comes or to trailer. you. Which... Right. So the goal then becomes, because we have what we have, is again, putting everything in context for people of what to actually pull from that moment of training. Not as in, okay, go in, you've done your burn, you come out, high five, take that and go with it and run your next call with it. The flashover container is a great example that a number of departments want to put their recruits on the line and do the whole pencil, 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 fog, fog, fog. It's like, that's never used. So why let them handle it? That's not what you'd be doing. That's one of the biggest training scars. I I mean, we've taught live fire a number of times together and that's something I always want to emphasize over and over and over again, that if this is what we're experiencing in a fire... A lot of times we don't apply water because we don't want the fire to go out. So you need to be hitting it with a lot of water and they're doing this training and two years later, are they going to remember that? Are they going to remember just sitting there and watching it and going, oh, this is really cool and not doing anything about it? So the way we'll frame it is, because I don't know if we've ever said it actually on an episode before for the flashover can is you and I say it the same way. It's like, why do we just let it with oxygen or or a little bit of water? Why do we keep knocking it back? Because we want it to flash 10 times. Right, exactly. So you can all see it as many times as possible with this fuel. Right. And when we get in a real house, we we want it to flash zero times. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) So again, then they go and they go, oh, okay, I understand. You're just, you're keeping it on the cusp and letting it go over and over and over again so I can keep watching it and I can watch with the tick and I can learn what's going to happen. But in real life, you step in the hot box, it's game on. Right. And we get a, I tell the students to pay attention to what I'm doing. If I'm running the can, pay attention to when I open up the roof hatch or get the the instructor at the back to open up the door, how that changes inside. So they have a better understanding of of ventilation and what the smoke is doing and how it banks down and, and the lift. And when we give it the oxygen, then it creates that perfect mixture with the heat. So we kind of try and keep just talking about it so that they experience the entire time. And obviously they're not going to hopefully have to be making these kinds of decisions when they first get into a fire, but you should start paying attention to that right from the very beginning, right? right? It's just like doing a size up. You're not going to be doing a verbal size up as a new firefighter, but you need to be doing your own size up when you get on scene. And that doesn't stop. No, it doesn't stop. And you, if you don't pay attention to it because you know somebody else is doing it, that's detrimental. And that's almost a training scar, even though you're at an actual fire. Oh, the captain's got it. I don't have to worry about it. And you get this tunnel vision. But if you're paying attention to that from an early age, when you have to be making those decisions, then you're going to understand it more. You're going to know what the smoke is doing from the outside. You're not necessarily doing the 360, but talk about it with your your captain or your officer afterwards or go through it after you leave the house, right? What were you paying attention to? Looking for windows in the basement and all of those things so that you can start to create that mindset right from the beginning. We're always having them take responsibility for understanding what's going on. Exactly. Another training scar from the flashover can too, is that you're in real life, you're going to see this aurora borealis, like beautiful rollover. So mesmerizing. But then they think, well, I'll see that and then be able to react when I start to see that. 
Whereas in real fires, that's happening over your head and you're not seeing it until it's black, 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 all orange. Right, exactly. Yeah. So again, another piece of context for people that this happens in the flashover king is it's perfectly set up to it's do It's perfectly this. set up in the materials that we're burning. Right. So we don't have those real contents with the synthetic materials, petroleum-based products that are going to create a much thicker, blacker, darker smoke. And you can have the rollover happening. And I try and point it out in the flashover can where you can see a little bit of glow above your head but it's not obvious. You really have to look for it. So I try and use that example as there's fire above our head right now. And even though you can't see it, it's there. And with the tick and doing thermal imaging training, the importance of that and, and paying attention to all of those things. But with each firefighter not being able to have their own personal tick yet, by the time we see every single firefighter and every single level of department have one, I mean, we're years and years down the road for that. If, if ever that's going to happen. What you're even pointing out for them to focus on is when they're literally sitting on the floor watching intently. <laughs> yeah. So now you got to put in context, like realize where's your focus in a real fire? Like you're handling a line, like yeah. you're in an unfamiliar environment, you're working, you're moving around, things are banging, you hear all, all this external stimuli. So you're barely seeing it. And you're, you're exhausted. Yes, you may be forced a door, stretch right. a line, your, right. your adrenaline's going. So it's, it's tough to pay attention to those things. And like, let's talk about the fact that so many people don't even have the flashover can. Like how many recruits don't get that experience? I don't know of any other schools in Ontario that do it or Texas or and maybe there are. I'm not saying there isn't, but they don't even get to, to look for those things. And then like you just said, take all of those other factors that you're tired, you're moving hose line. It's, it's a bigger structure. There's things in the way and pay attention to that and have that situational awareness. It's tough. So all these conversations ahead of the actual training happening, like I said, I think are more, they're just, they're way more important even than the actual training. I don't disagree. Right. So as instructors out there, or if you're thinking about getting into instructing, I think what we're trying to offer here is that really understand what the people are experiencing and try to explain it to them, what to take away and what's, what isn't actually real life and what this is for. And then pull that one or two points out of that training. And then you apply that as opposed to like, this is a flashover in a house fire. Yeah. And you have this safety network. If something goes wrong, even if you have a, a pack malfunction or whatever, you're a couple feet from the door, you go out and there's nothing, there's no consequences. Where in a real structure, you could be in pretty far. And what's that flame that's rolling over your head doing? Where's it going? Is it potentially lighting off something behind you that you're not paying attention to necessarily? So we discussed that with the issue of not applying water because how long have we been trained to put water into a structure unless we see the fire and we're so worried about insurance companies and the department getting sued and water damage and I'm sure you've probably talked about this on your podcast a lot but it's so important to be hitting the heat and the smoke at all times or, or when it's necessary to. With Kyle Romagas coming up for the Smoke Showing Conference to SFA and I'm sure he's obviously he's going to mention this but one thing I picked up from him was that whole, the idea if the neutral plane is at the doorknob or lower, right? And smoke's pushing, it's a flow and move situation. Like, yeah. it's, I just love that. And that comes from Jay Bonifield too. If you see this, do this, right? I've mentioned that before. But I just love us getting to that point of, because it's so overwhelming at a fire, you need this. If I see this, I do this reaction instinctual, get ahead of it. And then Aaron talking about don't get into a fair fight, overwhelm and dominate. Right. Yeah, exactly. And you should have opened the line 30 seconds or two minutes ago. Yeah. Open up the front door, hit it, see what happens. Is right. water hitting the floor or is it evaporating? If it's evaporating, then we know it's hot up there and our gear is so good. We're not feeling the heat, the temperature, 
the way they probably used to with the different protective equipment, which could be detrimental and not knowing how to read the tick or just paying attention. If you're excited, maybe you're not feeling the heat. So start flowing water right away. I, yeah, I agree with that completely. So to put this even speaking of context, you had an experience of like getting caught by yourself in a basement. Maybe tell me that story because I think that would put this into real life framework for people. It was kind of a weird, a weird call. We went in upstairs and there's a big hole in the floor. We knew it was a basement fire. So we redeployed the hose, went stretched around the other side. We went down into the basement. It's not as dramatic as it sounds, but I had a, another captain with me and a new firefighter. I was ahead of the crew, sounding the floor, getting to the basement and, and went down. And I just assumed that the nozzleman was with me. And I went into the basement, kind of was looking around and could see some fires in the joists. And I knew where it was because of the hole in the floor that we where we went up ahead of time. And so I told the, the firefighter on the nozzle to hit there and then where to hit next. And they weren't there. <laughs> so I was like, oh, that's, that's, that's not good. So I turned around, went back to the stairwell and I couldn't, I couldn't find it. I put my forearm on the wall and was looking for the doorknob so that I could find it that way. And I couldn't. So I assumed that maybe it was an unfinished basement, maybe just a piece of plywood on hinges or something, and found out after that's what it was. They had a piece of plywood on hinges with a bungee cord. So as soon as I walked through the door, the door shut and the nozzle firefighter was still on the stairs. I couldn't find where it was, so I started banging the door to try and listen for a different sound that the wall would make and eventually found it. And the other captain had gone back. He he wasn't with us. He had gone back to help feed hose into the house. That's where he had went. And I just assumed he was with the nozzle firefighter. And then they came down. So it was, it was fine, but it was a moment. It was an uneasy feeling being mm-hmm. in a basement fire with pretty good fire. And we ended up getting a good hit on it and we got pulled out. Yeah. So that puts it in context for people of you also, I think you touched on it briefly there of in these training scenarios, you also feel very safe. That part of your brain is turned off because we also do like a safety walkthrough. You've seen right, the entire yeah, building. Exactly. We hammer it home. Like, listen, you're not in here to suffer. It's here. You're here to learn. If you feel this, you need to let us know. Like they feel very comfortable because you want people to be comfortable when they're learning before you ramp them up to the psychological intensity. But then that, that again might create this like, oh, it's, I don't need to be cautious or overly worried and then have my senses heightened, or you mentioned not having to pay attention, then you need to turn that on when you leave the training context and you put it into... Right, and then what you're experiencing in there. Like, So we started hitting it, and there was very little heat, so I thought we had the fire completely under control, and Chief kept calling us to come out. Turned out that we didn't have good reception on the radios or whatever it was. Our messages weren't transmitting, so I was asking for ventilation, and we had it under control. Ended up blasting the air horn and I could hear he was getting frustrated that we weren't coming out. I was like, what? We got it. What, what's the big deal? And we came out and the whole thing was just sailing above us. I guess it was just an anomaly balloon frame construction with all the insulation was wood chips and there was a bunch of different roof lines. So even there, you don't have the heat and you think, okay, things are good, but they're not always good. And have to be paying attention to all those things and paying attention and listening to the crews outside who are giving you information. I had a similar experience early on with the townhouse complex, no fire breaks across the entire attic space between the eight of them. And we go in thinking, okay, nothing visible in the first, nothing visible in the second. We get to the third, it's up there. We knock it all down. We ventilate. We're like, high five, like we're done. This is room and contents easy. And then you see some smoke coming from the windowsill. You pop open, you know, you think you're doing a little overhaul here and chasing where it might've got into some void spaces and it's like flames. And then you knock the drywall out in the corner, it's like flames. And this is one of those, you know, mansard roofs where you're like surrounded by the roof. Yeah. And you've got a big problem with those. And it ran the whole gamut of the, but so that outside all of a sudden they have a majorly different 
view of what's happening and they're calling us out like what are you going what are you talking about i think we have this <laughs> right and then you step outside and then there's smoke everywhere and you're like oh my god what happened it was right, like, yeah. such a different experience you ever from see that, inside. that firefighter from detroit that picture he's coming out his arms are up he's like so mad at command for pulling him out you feel like that like, what do you no just let me right. let me get in there i got it i got it yeah it's one house no right. it's eight right it's eight houses and how, how do you train that to people how do you how do you teach people that yeah so that's a great point too about how like all of these different factors that yeah, there's certain things you can fast track people through based on your experience, but some things you just have to experience. You can't hand that over to them. You no. can't infuse that in their brains. Like and then there's so many things to talk about when you're teaching, right. when you're trying to teach these things. So you're not going to remember to talk maybe about row housing or or just all these different anomalies that you may experience mm. because there's so many different ones and you only have so much time with them. So do you, especially with candidates that are in pre-service, it, there is this point of you have to simplify to a point, but you can't be too simple. You could sit for three hours and then just pepper them with stuff that you think they need to know. And they got overwhelmed just like an hour into it and they've lost everything. So it's always this fine line of like, how much do you pass on and how much do you simplify? Yeah, you have to simplify because they have to go through and, and learn the basics, right? I think trying to teach them critical thinking skills and try and get them to go out and learn about this stuff on their own because they're not going to be taught necessarily depending on the department they're getting on. They may not be taught these things. They may be on a department where they have low amount of training and you have to be trying to think outside the box of what you could potentially be rolling up on all of the time. One of the things about the school that's good is you try and pepper a little bit of it each day instead of leaving it all for the live fire day. When you're teaching forcible entry, when you're teaching ventilation, when you're teaching ladders, you can talk about these different circumstances that they may be faced with when they get on the job. And having the level of instructors that we have, I think, is good because there's so much experience there where everyone's giving a little bit of a different perspective and have their own experiences. And then it's not as overwhelming because they're taking it in doses. So I think that's important to have the people who aren't coming in to train to the JPRs. Okay, yeah, this is how you do whatever and not talking about the experiences or how it's integrated. Yeah, integrated with everything that they're going to need to know. Yeah. So that's a fine art with instructing too is because everything integrates, you're talking ventilation. It's kind of hard not to talk about that without talking about coordinating with suppression. But you also don't want to go down the rabbit hole and then you spend an hour on suppression when you're you're going to be covering that later. And I would say we do this very well. It's like because we thought a lot about it is like you can briefly go down that path right give them just a touch of like oh i see how this coordinates with that and without and telling then, war stories yeah and it's got to be beneficial 100 and then students. you pull back and you refocus again right exactly so you're always touching on these other like a like a spider web you're touching on where it goes but you don't distract from where you are and then when you're doing suppression you're touching back to ventilation yeah, briefly you have to because they're so like right you said, they're so integrated that right you have to talk about them and that's where with technology and videos and like it's huge in the u.s now where they're wearing wearing cameras on like helmet cams and i think it's so beneficial and the chiefs don't really like it here in canada it, doesn't, it seems like they don't want it at all and i don't know if it's for liability, liability. reasons yeah exactly but we can learn so much from these videos. So it's nice to to have examples of everything that we're talking about and show the students because we're never going to be able to, even when you're teaching it, it's hard to for them to maybe understand or, or get the grasp without the visuals. So the videos are nice on YouTube and social media that you can show real examples of what could potentially happen or go wrong. And especially generationally with now newer firefighters, they're used to video as being their medium and fast grab 
you show a YouTube video, you can't play it for 12 minutes. No. You got to bring it to the point where you're going to be showing them and show them the 15, 20 seconds and go, right. do you understand that? Yeah. Okay. Then we can move on. So it's actually a benefit because I, I don't know, I hadn't thought about this before, but perhaps you can touch on things faster and in shorter bites. Yeah. And with a visual where they which can, you can cover see, more yeah. versus the old school would be like, maybe you need to spend more time on to meter the the doses where people are their brains are moving so fast now that maybe you can oh, yeah. hit them with shorter faster yeah pieces. for for sure and if they're continuously learning after right because you can't necessarily show every video or every example that you'd like to but you can give them links or tell them about stuff and hopefully they have enough initiative to just go and start watching these videos and watch the full 15 minutes and see how the call ran and played out and hopefully start to understand if it went bad or if it went well, what caused them to go bad, what caused them to go well, so they can ha start having an understanding of that. Joe was talking about it the other day when he got on. He just started watching videos from, from FDMY and anything he could find on YouTube to get a better understanding of how command works and the tactics they decide to use. And yeah, it's, it's great. A lot of people don't want to do that, though. That's, a, that's yeah. the unfortunate thing. People aren't getting into the job for the right reason. That's something we definitely try and pass on as well, is that it's even with the most well-intentioned department, with the best facilities, the best planning, it's impossible for any department to give you all the training you need. It's absolutely impossible. So you need to seek this stuff out on your own. And even then you're not going to have enough. You're still not going to, but <laughs> right. it's obviously going to be way better. Right. right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Which is, which is when we get into the benefit of conferences, which we're lucky now with Smoke is showing, but you know, there, we need... We need more of them everywhere, just yes. like the States does. That's a huge benefit. Yeah, and they they, they're not here really. I mean, yeah. Smoke is showing they're doing a great job Amazing. by doing yeah. one a year. And we have some other things in the works to hopefully get some more from these instructors too. They're phenomenal and so charismatic. And I go down to the U.S. once in a while to listen to them. And it's like, we should be getting them up here to, right. <laughs> to, to, to learn from them because they have so much experience, especially... The guys who work on active departments. And mm. That's a great segue. So you went down recently. So talk about what you brought back. But you mentioned to me about the importance of consistency of training. Like it feels like Groundhog Day for the instructor, but it needs to be that. Literally, this is the way it's done and it's consistently. If it's done well, this is exactly how it needs to be. You just need to repeat that. So talk to me about your experience in the States and how that really sunk that into your brain. The hard part is usually the people that go down to the States are wanting to train all of the time. I think the biggest benefit of it, it jacks you up and gets you excited to come back. But the people who don't want to go down are probably the people who should be doing that training, right? They should be the ones going and listening to these conferences. So it's really tough to, I don't know, bring it back because a lot of the times people are, yeah, no, that's how they do it. But when they explain, and you can't always articulate the same way that they do, right, with their, their experience. And so there's a lot of hesitation from the other firefighters that you're trying to bring it towards. But like you said, consistency, you don't give up and you try and find stuff that you can show them that hopefully makes it make more sense to them. Well, you were saying, I think specifically to like FDTN, right? So that's where you went down to. No, I, I, I haven't been there. I was just in Lexington Oh, you okay, for um, Andy Frederick's training days. Right. Okay. I got the two mixed up. So you went down for the Andy Frederick's training days. I remember you mentioning to me that that's big in their approach. They deliver it consistently all the time. Every yeah, time they teach it, they teach it this yeah, way. Yeah, so that's your fire department training network with Jim McCormick. And they do it the same way every single time. Brass has told me more about it because he's gone down. And, I see, that's and, where it came and from. And taught okay. there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. So that's what we're trying to do, kind of incorporate more at the school. 
And it can be tough because you have all these different instructors from different places coming in who want to train it kind of their way. Where if you do it the same, like even he tells me stories about Jim saying, this isn't how even I do it, but this is what we've decided amongst the other instructors. That's the best way to teach it. And we're going to teach it that way every time. It's consistent for the instructors and the students, and they're getting the same messaging all the time. And again, Brass talks about this all the time with, if you have videos and pictures of on social media of your recruit class, boot camp 54, and the next boot camp, it's completely different. Well, the students are going to be like, well, I didn't get to do that. What This doesn't seem fair. That looks like that was fun. So we're really trying to, to lock in the same instructors for the same days with the videos and stuff so that we know this is how we teach it and just do it this way. And you can, of course, talk about other experiences and stuff that might be relevant. But as far as actually doing the skills, it's a lot easier if we can all get on the same page. Right. And not, again, overwhelming students with... 50 ways of doing something. Exactly. And I think instructors, again, like they're well-intentioned. Like we all have good intent of like, okay, I'm not telling you, some instructors would, the bad ones would say, this is the way it's done. Don't listen to that guy. Even great instructors are sometimes saying, okay, that has value. Here's also something that has value. Because we get excited. But if like, we yeah, do, let me show you this But way. if we do that 20 times, <laughs> right. then it's not fair it's like, well, which, necessarily to right. students. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we all do it. I'm guilty of it too. They ask a question and you want to show them a new way or or a different way. I'm sure there's some value to it, but there's definitely has to be a negative effect as well. Right. So the benefit of, and I had this experience with PPA and PPV being very contested or PPA, the, the fans always at the front door and it's always running, or it's like, leave that thing on the truck and never use it because of lack of training and understanding. There was this two camps and what's going on with the fire. Right. So to solve that, there was a lot of time spent talking to naysayers, talking to people that were very pro-fan, and then getting everybody in the room at the same time, and then debating like crazy, have all the fights there, and then everyone understand that none of us are going to leave here 100% happy that it's our way, but when we leave here, we're going to teach it like this. Yes, and if if those people can be open-minded, that's the biggest thing, because some people will maybe lose the argument or the whole group will decide on something else. But one person is like, no, I'm still, I'm going to bring this back to my crew or, or whatever. And maybe they convince themselves that they're doing something good. Because if they don't do that, it's, they're getting, people are getting the wrong message. But that's actually ego-based. I was just going to say, that's the ego that's coming in, right? And I know you talk about that all the time. And it's, <laughs> it's obviously a big negative. Which having people in, that you're teaching in mind of what their experience is. Which I think we're doing very well at SFA. It's like always focusing on the student experience. Or it worked one time, went really, really well for them. Right, the anecdote. So it's like, oh, this is the only way. So great that it worked for you once, but you only ever tried it once. <laughs> so if you went to another fire and tried that, it might have been horrible. You just haven't had the experience of that happening. So this is the only way. So the compromise, really, there's a lot of, a lot of us, I think, in general, just need to learn how to compromise. And not feel that we're not ending up in a place where it's poor training and not real life. And dive into more research. It doesn't have to be just you, the people in that room making those decisions. It could be reaching out to other firefighters and other departments. Hey, how do you guys do this? Or looking at different studies, different articles that are written. And you have to give some weight to those as well. Are you feeling that this is a better time now? Because all the way coming up, like from every generation, everyone's just doing the best they can with what they have. Now we have everything at our fingertips. The problem is almost the reverse, that we have too much and you have to know how to filter it. Yeah, that's definitely a problem. The other problem, especially for volunteer services, is retention. Firefighters are coming in for a couple of years, maybe, maybe five if they're lucky, and they get hired on somewhere. And now you're getting a new recruit and you're starting from scratch. 
So you're losing that experience. You're losing all of those things that they've learned. And now you have to retrain the firefighters, right? If you could train everyone on your department to do water rescue and whatever, any of the different disciplines, you could keep building on all of those things. But when it's such an open door now and everyone's coming in for a little bit of time and then leaving, now you have to start from from fresh. And I, I think the chiefs are getting a little overwhelmed and I understand why. Like, how do you keep people there for 20 years? That's the way it used to be on volunteer departments. People would be there for 20, 30 years and get to keep that experience. I think you were touching on it there where you can keep crews together for a long time. Let them stay together and let them keep advancing their training versus keep bringing in new people and you got to keep starting from the basics again. Right. But yeah, it's a good point even on full-time departments where there are some departments that do a shuffle every couple of years. Or every six months. Or every six months. So right. how are you ever going to really jive with your crew? And you get to that point with a crew and I'm lucky I've been on my crew for five years and there hasn't been a lot of movement or anything and hoping that we're going to get to stay together for the next 10 years until somebody else retires. You start to be able to communicate without talking and you know what the other firefighter is going to do. You don't have to, you can just pay attention to what they're doing or you know what they're going to do because they're always good at that. So they kind of take that role on. Yeah. So to get back to consistency, I think let's just talk ideal utopia here. If everyone on the department saw the department as one team, as one crew, and we all were able to compromise and understand that this is the way we as a department do things, and you were all trained at that same level and knew how to operate at that level, then it wouldn't matter which crew you dropped into because you right. do work the same way. But is that realistic? I guess that's my question. <laughs> that, can we, can we get there happen? with where I think is the, is the problem ego again, where crews want to say, well, our crew does this. And I think they don't understand how detrimental that is. Yeah. I don't know that it's I'm not going to say it's impossible, but I think it's a stretch for sure, unfortunately. And like you said, it's not necessarily, it's not malicious. It's not because people uh, have the wrong intentions, but they have their own ideas and everyone is the alpha thing. It's their way and that's how they've always done it. And we're not willing to change. And, and you have to get everyone to that level, which again, it's hard enough to do the adequate training as it is. Never mind, get everyone on the same page and get rid of, no, we're not doing it this way anymore. You're doing it this way. Like, a lot of firefighters don't like change, right? Do you think you could get there through accountability, through, let's talk about even post-fire critiques. If they're going to do them department-wide, if they're watered down because they're worried about either A, liability, or B, hurting people's feelings, then the learning doesn't come out of it. I think it helps a lot. And there's a lot of things that we can do to make it better. And we can hopefully continuously make it better. But being able to manage it is a really tough thing. And then you have broken telephone. Even if you could teach everyone the exact same way, they go back to their crews because it's not going to probably be everyone. It's probably going to be a shift instructor or whatever. And they misinterpreted something. So again, it's not that they're trying to go against the grain or do it their own way. They just interpreted it wrong. Everyone has a different learning style and teaching style, and it can get maneuvered as that training gets passed down. So now you're kind of in the same boat where, and, and it, even if it was unintentional, you think you're doing, yeah, this is what all the crews are doing. And you could be doing two completely different things, right? And I see that in the academy all the time. You teach the students how to do it and they go and do it a completely different way. Like, is that how we said to do it? And you ask the whole group, like, did I say that? And they're like, yeah, but they weren't paying attention for a few minutes or, or they misunderstood it or they saw it in a video and that's where their memory is going and think they're doing it the way they were just trained to do it. The human aspect, it's a, it's a really tough thing to do unless you had 
which they're they're getting more involved with uh, with the online learning and videos and stuff. At least that way you can kind of reset it, right? Like the photocopy thing. If you keep photocopying a photocopy, eventually you're going to lose it. But if you always have that base to go back to, then maybe that would help. Yeah, as a foundation. Like if everyone did the ULFSRI, all the courses... I mean, yes, they could interpret things differently even from that, but it would be more consistent. And then you can do your training on top of that. Yeah. And then if you do it once a year, depending on the training, a couple times a year, you keep going back to that. So it's harder to, to stray away from it. Right. And let's touch back now on the, the safety first mentality and how we're not necessarily applying it across the board. You mentioned briefly at the beginning there about people being concerned about the dangers of class A burning and obviously cancer. And in no part of this conversation are we saying that's, that's not a concern. No, 100%. Or the idea of the PFOS in, in your gear now. So there's, there all are all these concerns, which are valid, strongly valid. But bring up what you were talking to me about earlier, about how we don't necessarily in our minds apply that across the board in our lives. Yeah, there's a lack of consistency. We're worried about PFOS in our bunker gear, but it's in everything else dental floss and everything. It's in everything. The clothes that we wear, we go to bed and we're sleeping in it and the carpets that we, we walk on, the couches and chairs we sit in, and we don't seem to really care about it. But then it's one of those low-hanging fruits. Fire service jumps on board with it and it becomes this big issue. We can be doing so much more for our health, I think. I agree that there definitely can be real concerns, but how concerned are we about it when we talk about it and, oh, we need to change this, and then we go eat cheeseburgers and have ice cream for dessert and say, well, do we really care? <laughs> and, we, and we go home and drink alcohol and all of these things that are carcinogenic in our, our lifestyles, but we're only concerned about this one tiny little thing. And my big issue with it is is now affecting the job. It's affecting how we do it. So yeah, I don't disagree. Yeah, sure. We can take these things seriously and, and look for alternatives, but it can't interfere with protecting the public, right. right? I've been hearing now about, talk about clean cabs, and I think it's a horrible idea. I think it's it's dangerous, and it's going to take that much longer to get your pack on when you get on scene. And now they're talking about taking bunker gear out of out of the truck as well. So it's just one more step that you have to do. So let's clarify clean cab for people. Cause we, I mean, we just assume that everyone knows what that means. But, right, yeah. Sorry. So no one's saying... Don't clean the truck. Yeah, I'm not saying don't, don't wipe clean things down. Your don't clean your gear. Don't, like have the salty helmet. No one's saying that. Right. But with the clean cab mentality, is nothing that it relates to firefighting is in the cab with you. Right. So exactly. And how do you do that? And we're worried about PFAS. Well, what's in the seats that we're sitting on? It's a tough thing. We actually had um, a group of university students coming through, and they were working on a project to try and tackle some of these issues. And how can we do decon? on a fire ground after and they had pictures of showers popping out of the truck and it was like oh great ideas not very realistic or midwinter when it's minus 20 exactly that, right? right so many things that they weren't thinking of and again thinking about them for the right reasons but they kind of got a sense that i was a little bit annoyed with with the whole situation because it affects a job so much right and people only focus on that they're not focusing on the other things and i said i get what you're trying to do and i agree and it's it's amazing but if you're trapped inside of your apartment, you're not going to care about us getting cancer. You're going to want us to come in as quickly as possible and pull you out of that fire. Yeah, sure, take the steps and the measures that we need to, but it can affect our job and our response time. So touching back to that idea of, say, getting, just for an analogy, putting everybody in the room and you have the naysayers and the, and the pros, right? You have these two extremes, like let's always try and find the middle ground. So 
you have people like screw it salty just like my helmet's black and i'm like that's the one extreme then you got that everything needs to be pristine and nothing that touches me has to be carcinogenic so you got those two extremes where is that line of like this is part of it we we have to train this way with this stuff or this has to be in the truck with us how do we make it as best as possible and as healthy as possible and then how do we be as healthy as we can in our life to mitigate the damage that we know we're going to be taking on. Yeah. And I think that's our responsibility as well as to change our lifestyle. Like you said, to mitigate these problems, right? Proper sleep and sauna use and cold water therapy, all the things that are really starting to evolve. So we have to do that. A lot of times people don't want to, right? It's inconvenient. It takes time. It's challenging. It's, it's uncomfortable. So we don't do it. So we just focus on one tiny little thing that's probably not nearly as harmful as all the other things in our regular lifestyle. So how do you do it? I don't know. I think they've come a long way with decon and they're making big changes with cleaning gear and whatnot. It's a dangerous job. You're going, we were at a fire the other night for like eight hours wearing that gear. We're sitting in that gear with the smoke and whatnot the whole time. But for the five minute ride back to the fire station, oh, it's got to come off now. Right. <laughs> well, what if we were at the fire for another three hours? <laughs> right. <laughs> we, right. It just, I don't know. It seems but then to you be... get, but then you get back, you'll have, maybe you've got a second set of gear. Yeah. You swap out your balaclava, you shower as soon as you get back. Like it's going straight into the extractor. Right. You're, all you're, the equipment you're scrubbing that was used all your stuff. Just getting cleaned. Right. So it's not saying like, we can't do it. So fuck it. Don't worry about anything. Right. It's like yeah, saying. Take, take the best steps necessary. Right. right. And also understand you signed up for a job that's dangerous and does have health consequences. I mean, I'm not trying to sound so negative about it, but it is a dangerous job. Like you can't be on air an entire fire. Winds are going to shift. There's some things that we just can't change. And I feel like there's a lot of people, committees, governing bodies that are trying to change everything or we're not going inside anymore. In the U.S. with, well, if there's no one confirmed inside, then we don't need to go. Like these legislations that are trying to be passed. And it's, it's, it's insane to me. Like you, you talk about search culture all the time. And there's so many podcasts on that, aggressive firefighting and, and the importance of it. And you have your other side of the room in your analogy who's saying, no, why would we go in there? Why would we risk anything? Well, because there could be someone in there. We don't know. Even just touching on, say, a residential structure fire. The sooner you get in and knock it down and get it done, the faster you're out of there and the faster you're back Safer in station. It is. <laughs> right. So the more, the more you don't do that and you make it quote unquote safe, the longer you're on scene, right. the more and, you're going to be in the danger and environment. How, how much are people taking the time to initiate training on their crew, right? So they'll talk about these things, but they're not going out and doing mask up drills or forcing doors or stretching lines or all those things that are going to make the job safer for us. So it's awfully convenient to take one little piece of it and worry about it and then not worry about that other huge aspect that is going to keep us safer. Exercise. How many people don't exercise that are firefighters? A good amount. <laughs> <laughs> really, it's the ability to have like a macro view, 30,000 foot view and go down to the micro and see the small and go up and down and up and down like that. So then you're getting the full picture of everything. Versus staying again in extremes of one or the other, micro focused on this one little thing that's going to blind you or staying way too far back from it and not really seeing the details. And that takes energy and time. Big time. Yeah. So one of the challenges as well, and you mentioned it briefly, was the size of department too. It's great if you've got 16 stations, 20, 30, 60, and you can rotate crews through and they're only getting exposed for short periods of time. But like you said, the smaller the department, you've got four stations or two or one that's the only people showing up and they're there for the duration. So applying these mentalities across the board is really hard. 
as you being on a quote unquote smaller department, how are you guys approaching it? Like walk me through House Fire as far as how it would go through from start to finish and decon and how are you thinking about these things but still getting the work done? We're just starting to get into that kind of stuff and they're doing more research on it and whatnot, but we finish at a fire, gear gets bagged up, all of that stuff gets put into an SUV or a pickup truck, which is great and all, but what if you're responding back to, you're coming back to the station and now another fire comes in? Well, now you don't have bunker gear and you don't have that ready to go. And I think that's important as well. And you may not have other trucks available to respond. You have mutual aid maybe, but chances are they were already at that same fire with us helping and now they're going back. So now you have no trucks in service. Again, for the community and the public, it's really dangerous. You can do the best that you can, but at the end of the day, we still have to be there to provide that service for the municipality. So really it's about the auxiliary or support vehicles that maybe that you have, say, ensuring that fresh hose is brought to the scene so you're loaded on scene as as you go back. Yeah, get back in service as quickly as possible, which we do. I mean, we obviously try and do that, but... But then balancing that with being able to get a shower and and get your gear switched out or, and then some departments don't have second sets of gear. Right. So what do you do with that? So is that really the, the main focus then is trying to get to these realistic actions that you can take? Even if you took your gear off and didn't necessarily bag it up and now it's all stripped down. So if another fire does come in, you don't have anything. Even if it gets put into a cab in the truck or something, is that beneficial where you can stop, throw it on and then go to that next call? That would work, but now it's it's already at the station and you're just leaving the scene. You could be 10 minutes away, so who goes, right? Where, like I said, you're already there for hours. What's that extra 10 minutes? The cab could be dirty because of a window being open and smoke going in there. You still have to clean the cab, I guess, right? So, And if you run the second fire, that gear is going right. Well, yeah. But I guess it, they could say it's less safe because now it's saturated in soot or it's been exposed to heat or you haven't had time to inspect it or... I mean, it'd be ideal to have a fresh set of gear every single time. It's right. brand or, new out of yeah. the bag. And that's what, I mean, I've done some ride-alongs with Detroit Fire, and they don't wash their gear at all. <laughs> and kind of asked them about it and stuff, and they said, well, you go to five, ten fires a day. Right. The city okay. doesn't have money to provide us with ten sets of bunker gear. So even if you do everything right, you get back, and you swap your gear out, and another fire comes in, well, now that gear is dirty. And we're on a department that's composite and you've got your full-time crews coming back to help out and your volunteers. So now if you get two or three fires in a week, you don't have any gear. What do we do about that? Just, hey, we're out of service for the next week. It's just not realistic all the time, right? Like you said, if you even if you have a second set of gear, you get that second fire. You're right. What and do you now do now? Yeah, and, we, and it doesn't happen often. But we're no. not Detroit level, but there right. was a day where we had four in a day. Right, exactly. And everybody's, no one can stand by and there's no crews to rotate and we're all using all our gear and it is what it is. But yeah. that's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about that. Like putting ideas into reality, like Detroit, like, okay, we run, we literally run this many fires a day. Yeah, what the, fir- do do the first it? shift I did with him, we had five structure fires. Right, <laughs> right. So what, what can you do about that? There's nothing you can do. Or maybe there is, maybe yeah, maybe buy five sets of bunker gear, but they can't replace their boots because they have holes in them. And there's a budget as well that has to be followed. And So putting these standards, if we want to say, quote unquote, across the board and trying to apply them to every single department everywhere, this is where it doesn't fly. Right. In a small department like mine, it's usually the same people that are coming out. And I live out of town, so I'm not one of them, but the same full-time firefighters and same volunteers typically come and they're the ones that are getting their gear dirty. So if they're in the extractor and another fire comes in, there's nothing for them to do. 
And touching back to instructing, I guess with the 24 hour now, it's a bit easier. You could, you could teach and then your gear, if you have a second set, well then that gear goes off to be washed. And I guess that's twofold because okay, you could be instructing for the day. Your one gear is set of gear is done. You need three sets of gear, which right. is what I believe our department's doing now. You actually get three sets of your oh, instructor. Really? So then you have the right. two backup, but again, whatever other department can do that. And, and how many instructors are there? Right. And then what, and then <laughs> what, expo- a small exposure. percentage of, of your department. Right. And then what exposure are your instructors getting right. over time? If those are the same people. So there's that too, right? As an instructor, you're going to get way more exposure to. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of my thing is what can we do to stay healthy and maintain that healthy lifestyle? And I think. There's a little bit we can do at work for sure, but we'll never be able to eliminate it altogether unless we just stop going to fires or stop going into fires. Right. So it's so important to maintain that health and keep a good immunity up. And we don't tend to focus on that. And even with training, how often are we discussing the importance of exercise, clean eating, fasting, cleansing, whatever? We don't talk about it very, very rarely does it get discussed. Or we put it all on the departments to provide us with that. Right. And they don't. Right. Or can't. Yeah. Or can't. Right. So again, coming back to personal accountability of I've chosen to do this career. How can I approach it holistically from my personal life and my work life? This is what I do. What are the things I can do every day to try or try and do them as often as possible? And maybe people just aren't interested, which is fine. This isn't just a firefighter issue. We talk about cancer in the fire service. It's a huge, it's a global problem. It's not just our industry. Yeah, a lot of industries are carcinogenic. Tons, probably way more than firefighting. A lot of them that are more than firefighting. Being a mechanic and being around benzene all day long. and Or if you're making shingles. Yeah, you're making (laughs) shingles. Or when you drive by and there's a road crew working and putting fresh asphalt down and you smell that, you're like, ooh, that can't be good while I drive back. Well, I would stand in there for 12 hours doing that job. For 15 years. Right. <laughs> we can get micro-focused on the damage that we're being exposed to. But, and again, it's not saying that, well, it happens way more in other industries. So let's no, just not no, worry no, about of it. course not. Yeah. I know we got to keep putting things in context because it's be very careful. When yeah. You say I don't want to be like... very controversial because I know it's a real issue. I'm not yeah. saying it's not. I'm just, we're only looking at, a, like you said, a very small piece of it. What are things even small departments, I guess, could do to make things available for people to take better care of themselves overall? You're with a small department and you don't have to focus on what your department is doing or not doing, but maybe from that, because you have that experience, are there things that could be added into the daily life of your department that could um, benefit the firefighters? Yeah. And my department's great. We have a good budget for our gym and our chief's very supportive of wanting us in the gym and being healthy and whatnot. I think the problem is everyone's busy, like management's busy doing things and, and there's always a budget they bring in some online learning that you have to do. It costs a lot of money. I think it has to be more crew-based. And my crew's good. We'll do yoga every once in a while or try and eat somewhat healthy. And we're pretty supportive of each other. But to see that come down from the top, it's not because they're not trying to not give us that training. It's just there's so many things going on. Again, I think you have to kind of take the initiative yourself Departments are limited to what they're able to do. So you need to take more of a focus on what you do off the job to mitigate it. And on the job. I think it's important on the job to work out as a crew and do training and whatever. But I mean, you're only there a quarter of the time less. So, and you have a job to do, right? (laughs) Right? You're you're running calls and you're training and you're doing things that you can't just focus on health and, and mental health and all of those things. Speaking of shifting things and always looking at ways of doing things better. Let's talk about SFA a little bit. 
and what you're looking to shift and change in the future, if you can? Ooh, yeah, no, it's a good question. Just trying to get everything very dialed in, have lead instructors is kind of a big one. It just takes time. That's the big problem, right? And I can kind of speak to everything we were talking about from the different perspective from the top where I would love to be able to do more for the instructors and the staff, but it's it's so challenging because there's so much other things that you have to take care of, but things are really getting dialed in. We have a really good team now. It's just getting a little bit easier with organizing things and whatnot. So looking to dial in the videos and the online learning, Gord's working on online stuff that is really beneficial. That's a good positive direction. I'd like to get more involved with having guest instructors come up from, from the U.S. They don't necessarily have to be from the U.S., but there's a lot of big names. And there's a lot more that travel from the U.S. Yeah, yeah. yeah, even the retired guys. And again, Brass has is, a, is friends with a lot of those guys, so he can bring them up. So it would be nice to, to put on some conferences and get more exposure to people who are interested. And if it's easier to get that training in Canada without having to go to the U.S., then there's going to be more buy-in. Those firefighters are going to go back to their crews and hopefully get them more engaged and hopefully get them to come out, right? it's It can be tough to, to drive 10 hours or take a flight somewhere if you have family and spend all that money to go away. So if we could bring that here, like Smoke is showing is doing, then I think that's going to be be a huge benefit. So that, that would be kind of my dream. That's what I would like to see happen a lot more getting courses dialed in, like I said, and the consistency with all the instructors and, and having them all on the same page. So we're definitely getting better all of the time. It'll never be perfect. We just want to always keep moving in the right direction. No pun intended, but I guess speaking of exposure to things, there's the idea of now bringing cold exposure to the minds of new candidates or anybody that comes up. So maybe talk to me about that a bit. Yeah. So I think you introduced me to the guy. You can speak to it. I just was excited when you brought the idea forward because I've I got into cold exposure probably three or four years ago now. So I'm a big believer in it and I find that it does phenomenal things for, for health. So is it Mike? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he was actually supposed to bring um, a tub up last boot camp, but he was stuck at that Toronto chemical fire. So he wasn't able to get it up there. But if we can start influencing our recruits at a young age or early on in their department, I think there's a lot of benefit to that and what it does for mental health and your just clarity. And if we can keep people with good immunities and, and healthy thinking, then it's a lot easier to be motivated to train and, and whatnot. If we have healthy brains and we're more motivated to, to be good at the job, and if you get into a rut and you're exhausted and whatnot, then it's tougher to do those things and you're you're less likely to go to work and have the energy to initiate training and whatnot. So I think the cold exposure is is huge for getting people excited and those endorphins released and active in all aspects of their life, not just not just firefighting, but if we have a healthy balance, then it's a lot easier to do all of these things. I also find it's one of those things that you have a instant experience of feeling better. Yeah, I did it this morning before right. I came here. And if you have that experience with something that, that someone brings to you and you have an an immediate effect. You don't necessarily have to like, that's okay, this is the thing and this is all I do. But to me, that kind of experience opens me up to like, what else is there? Yeah. So you start looking at other things that maybe I'm not doing that you start to self-experiment and try and integrate into your life. So I yeah. think there's there's that benefit too with having a, a different experience. Yeah, and the more of it you bring in, the more excited you are to feel better. 
when you eat unhealthy and you get into these ruts and you're drinking and stuff, like for me personally experienced, like it's tough to go out and get into the cold water plunge because <laughs> you're just not motivated. It's easier to sit on the, the couch and watch TV or whatever. But if you're eating clean, you're more you're more prone to go out and do exercise. And if you're doing exercise, you want to, you want to eat clean. And if you're doing those two things, you're more excited about going and, and getting it, starting the sauna or getting into the cold water. As your brain becomes more clear, you're just more motivated to do all of those things. Where if you're going the opposite direction, then it's tough to get started on it. Getting momentum when you're knocked back is really hard. Oh, it's so hard. Even just listening to podcasts, right? I try and listen to a podcast before shift and after shift. And when you're in these ruts, it's just easier to listen to the radio than I don't have to think. But when your brain is really thriving, then you're getting aspects, not just by physically doing things, but also intellectually listening to different podcasts and it gets more excited. And then you hear about different things that are out there and it's just a really positive up as opposed to the downward spiral. It's interesting that almost ironic that you could say that if you are aware of how damaging your job can be, carcinogenic stuff and sleep, you should be actually more motivated to d discover all these things that can manage that versus if you're in a job that has none of that, you're like, oh, my job's yeah, safe. You're not, you're so not I thinking about it. I don't have to do these other things to right. manage it because I'm not in danger. Exactly. So with the cold exposure coming to the school, if we can even if it's just a glimpse where people can see that and go, oh yeah, I feel better. It was easier studying that night. Obviously we can't provide everything that's good for your body, but maybe we start handing pamphlets out. I don't know that have different podcasts that to listen to or different people to listen to and research. And then you can start to go down that path. Where they see every learning opportunity as part of a journey and not, this is going to give you everything you need. Because no academy can give you everything you need. No department's going to give you everything you need. No podcast is going to give you everything you need. So I've heard it often where people want to be like, well, when I'm at, at work, I'm engaged. When I'm off, I switch it off. Again, let's talk about two extremes. 24-7, like wearing fire t-shirts, like stickers all over your car, <laughs> yeah. like eat, breathe, sleep, job, right? That's an extreme. Other extreme is like, when I'm not at work, it's the farthest thing from my mind. What's the balance for you? Because like, if anybody's engaged in the job, it's you. When do you know that, that you're getting to that fine line of too much job, too much academy, not enough personal? And yeah. I think we talked briefly on your first episode. I was just like, going to say, okay, yeah, so we kind of talked about so that. So this is perfect. So walk me through that about your journey and how you found the balance without completely abandoning the job or abandoning yourself. I think what I'm starting to learn is a good balance of having other hobbies outside of just firefighting is going to be beneficial to firefighting. So like I said, I try to listen to a podcast on the way to work and on the way home from work and it's not always firefighting related, but it has to be something that's going to help me on the job. So whether it's listening to Andrew Huberman or, or whatever, if it's helping me physically, mentally, emotionally, then that's only going to make me a better firefighter. I spent almost 10 years only doing firefighting things, like 150 hours a week. And it got to the point where it was just too much, right? Going to four training nights a month with the two volunteer departments and the truck checks and then your seven shifts a month and the academy nonstop. It started affecting me to the point where it was a negative impact going to work because I was so tired. 
Yeah, the, the more is better isn't always true. No, yeah, it's 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 much worse. And then you get into a rut and then you're less motivated to listen to a podcast or to go do training or whatever the case is. So I've been really trying to have a good healthy balance and now trying to start a family and whatnot. And that's not all going to be firefighting. So I love being outside in the, in the wilderness and kind of resetting and getting away from technology. I find that to be absolutely huge. Are you just more aware of when you're sliding too far down the rabbit hole again, or do you now schedule yeah, it I'm, into your we're life? Starting to just starting to. It's actually pretty recent. A week or two ago, started realizing I'm getting burnt out again. I'm I am super burnt out again. And how do I do this? It's you can find all the things to blame. You can blame the academy, and you can blame dealing with the politics. And then I realize it's not it's not beneficial. So. Have you listened to that Andrew Huberman podcast on alcohol? Not yet, no. Oh, yeah. I've been okay. pushing it off for a while. Okay. <laughs> and what I realized is there's certain things I can't do. I, I have to go to work. I have to be at the academy. I have to do these things. And it's too much. It's too much for me. But I'm also going home and having a few drinks every night. That's what I have to change. So I listened to the podcast and I'm basically, I'm, <laughs> I mean, I knew alcohol was bad for you, but right. it's, uh, I definitely recommend listening to that. So changing my brain chemistry and getting away from the TV, alcohol, eating bad food was more of the problem, right? It was everything stressful. So, but then we have all that, you don't have a healthy balance and then you start to do that downward spiral and then the school becomes harder and then it makes you want to have more drinks and then you're just constantly going down. So I've made a big change recently to go back to being super clean with health and exercise and it doesn't take long. After a few days, you already feel a hundred times better. You're more focused. And so I think the same thing for just for firefighters that work the, the regular schedule, you can benefit from whatever it is that you love to do, whatever your hobbies are. For me, it's being outside and hiking and going to the mountains. Even if I fly out to Alberta for three days, it's just so beneficial for a good little reset. When you're so stressed and burnt out, you convince yourself, you're like, I need this. It's amazing, right? You run on adrenaline all day. You get to have that drink and it's like, oh, perfect. It's time to relax. And right. the only thing that winds you down. And then it's like, no, 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 you can't. You can't live your life like this. Talking about cancer and stuff. And in this podcast, the effect that it has on cancer, the possibility of getting cancer is insane. Chaka was talking to a doctor recently and he was saying that he's realized that too with alcohol. But he also realizes the like the social benefit with his family and his friends. And so he's like, I just limit my exposure to it. So it's like I save it up for like when this happens, then I'm like, I, I have it then. Even him knowing about longevity, he's not going to remove it from his life. Right. So even for people saying, well, it's either no alcohol or all alcohol all the time. Again, these two extremes, like where, okay, if you're going to have alcohol in your life, where is that? amount. Right. And, and when. And that's what I'm going to have much. to experiment <laughs> with, right? Because I'm a drinker. I love drinking and it's so detrimental. But yeah, I think having a, a healthy balance where if you plan the days ahead. So if you're going to a concert and you want to have a few drinks or whatever, I think that's totally fine. The problem is when you go out for dinner with some friends, you have that beer. And if you have it scheduled and you get into the habit where everything that you do is better if you have a few drinks. Your mentality is, well, it's going to be better if I'm having well, that's a few our life, drinks. Right? That's it's either our like, life, right? right. Yeah. But if you shift your mindset on it, and it doesn't take long, right? You can still, you go to that concert 
and you still have just as much fun. Or you go out for dinner with your friends, you still have just as much fun. It's just changing that perception of, I don't have to have this in order to have a good time. And you can do little things, right? Keep your hands busy. And so I drink bubblies or whatever. And it's like, well, it's very similar to a vodka soda. Right. Can't even taste the difference. And right. I like to have cigars. And I know that's obviously not good for you, but I think it's a lot better than alcohol. And, and then how often are you having? Are you having three a day? No, or exactly. Or are you having one right? a week? When, it's, when you're at the campfire, you're at the yeah. cottage, at the fire. Yeah, so he talks about these moments in time where it's like... And then that's special. That's and, the... Right, and dose matters. Right. So you can't have 40 on the weekend and then... Right. Right, exactly. during the week and it balances out our bodies don't work that way right yeah so. exactly if you keep your body in an alkaline state all of the time or most of the time and you have a, the odd cigar or the odd beer or whatever i don't think it's that unhealthy your body can manage it yeah of course your right? liver you can keeping, manage it keeping your exactly your liver and all of the systems in your body working properly and you have a really good immune system and and take it and that's for me is like okay if i'm going to smoke cigars then i have to do something even more healthy. So I've got to give up <laughs> bread or whatever, yeah. right? And I don't know if we, if there even is data on that yet. Like, are we right now even convincing ourselves? If I do A, B, and C all the time, then I can have this. Like we still might even be convincing ourselves, well, right? Of course. It's easy to justify things. It feels like that's going to help. <laughs> and you can, you, you know, the healthy people that, that die early, unfortunately. And then we know the people who drink every day a lot and smoke two packs a day and they live to a hundred. So what I, yeah. But again, it's talking about anecdotal, so you don't know which camp you fall in. That's always confused me. Like, why wouldn't you, well, the healthy guy, the basketball player just dropped on the court. It's like, right. well, why wouldn't you give yourself the best shot? I mean, that's what we're talking about, right? Exactly. Giving yourself the best shot. And what's your quality of life that you're experiencing now? Fasting, I'm a big into fasting and there's not a whole lot of evidence about longevity. There, there seems to be a lot of good data that that speaks to it with animal studies and whatnot, but we don't really have the years of doing proper trials with humans. But how do you feel when I'm fasting? I feel amazing. I feel way more energetic. So that's, that's the path I'm going to choose. I drink and I feel good, but then how do you feel the rest of the time, right? So you kind of have to do self-trials because there's so much supporting evidence on both sides all the time too. I like to find the people on the podcast that I really trust based on how they break things down and the studies they do and seem to be fair. And they take all the factors into into consideration because there's so much data sets and, and studies and whatnot. So I like to find a few that I really, really trust. And then hopefully they're right based on the evidence that they provide. And then how does it make me feel? So like dry fasting, for example, there's 50% say it's really good for you and 50% say it's really bad for you. Well, how do I feel when I do it? And I feel great. So I'm going to go with maybe it's good for me. Did you find that? Well, doing something for five days, that makes me feel like garbage. Doing it for three days. Okay. That's a bit better. Doing it for two. Okay. My perfect amount is two, right? Like, so maybe for you fasting for, or even intermittent fasting windows, right? Right. And listening to your body. At 12 hours, I feel this. At 10 hours, I feel this. At eight hours, oh, six hours, I feel like garbage. Then you make your way back to six to eight. Okay, eight's the sweet spot. Yeah, and different different times in your life, right? If you were... You're at a big fire all night long and you've been working hard, then maybe that's not the day that you fast till four o'clock in the afternoon. Maybe you need some nutrients because you've been going nonstop. But people, a lot of times, and I'm kind of one of them, is all or nothing. There's no exception. It's like, okay, well, is this healthy right now? Or do I need to make a, a little change based on 
what's happened the last few days or the last few hours or what, whatever the case is. Because the I can't miss a workout is almost just as bad exactly. as I can't miss right. You're not taking a, beer. a rest day. They're both detrimental. I need to drink every day. I need to work out every day. Right. Like I said, not listening to your body and going, you know what, maybe today. But it's also to, easy to justify, oh, I, you know, I shouldn't work out today because of this. No, get in the gym. One thing guys <laughs> like you and me are like afraid of the slide. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right? You don't want that. So but maybe, like, well, maybe need... if I do this workout instead and yeah, yeah, yeah. But maybe if we pay attention, let's talk about that, the micro versus macro view. If you pay attention often enough that, well, I missed three days of exercise, but as soon as I got back on it and got a week under my belt again, I'm back where I was. Right. Yeah. It doesn't take long. Yeah. I mean, Hopefully. I was even worried with the injury. Like, right. am yeah, I yeah. ever going to get back? Right. And it's like, oh it's my the God. Worst feeling like, ever. Right. But then you get back and you're like, oh. So then maybe the next time you get injured, you're not going to have that mental breakdown of like, okay, I understand I'm going to be knocked back for this amount of time, but I know I can get back and this is how. Maybe with the eating, it's the same thing or the drinking, it's the same thing. It's like, okay. And he, and he does talk about that, right? I know when I drink at night, I'm going to feel like garbage the next day. But this moment with my family sitting here and we're having a drink together and talking, this is amazing. Yeah. And it doesn't need to happen all the time. That. It's not what we, what we always do, but right in this moment, this bottle of wine and whatever we're doing is amazing. So, and I know I'm going to lose sleep. So I get back on the horse the next three days in a row. Again, I'm paraphrasing what he's saying just to talk about dose and listening to your body and not just justifying drinking because right. <laughs> I barely drink. It's right. But to talk about, I guess for people that do, right? You need to figure it out. Yeah, exactly. And then yeah. that's where I'm intrigued to see what happens where can I just have a drink or two? Cause I'm, like I said, I'm kind of an all or nothing kind of guy and I have to either cut it out altogether or is it a slippery slope? But I that think, is a reality for some people. Oh, big time. Like you talk about me, addictions, yeah. right? Some people, and when we had Chris Howe on, I'm going to have Chris Howe on again. That was one of the things he said. He says, the moment I had my first drink, it was like, I was all off. Like it was game over. And he says, I can't have it. But that's him realizing himself. But the next person can say, well, I can have one a day and I'm fine. Again, we're all different. So you need to pay attention to your body and self-experiment. I think we keep coming back to that. Yeah. Let's take a, a short leap. It seems like a, a major change in direction, but knowing what you can handle. I think that's what we were just talking about, knowing what your body can handle. So let's make the leap now to say some departments knowing what they can handle and what they can't and when they need to ask for help or knowing what their people can handle as in we're expecting people to know way too many disciplines saturated overwhelmed even the keenest people two things departments reaching out to ask other departments for help or mutual aid and then maybe what we're getting at is specializing people so that they can really focus and master their craft versus watering them down they're not good at anything right yeah well let's go to the first one first i guess so Canada's run quite a bit different and there's a lot of places in the U.S. that have county-based fire departments and we're starting to see talk of that up here and what are the pros and cons and I'm sure there's both but how does a fire department especially a small one or you can talk about a large department how does a station take on everything they can't and that's why Toronto and your your city you have rescues at certain stations and squads I'm sure whatever how do you do that in a small department where you still have to be able to offer this level of service for everyone and take trench rescue, for example, right? That's a, it's a big discipline and a lot of equipment. And how do you do that? And then also be really good at swift water rescue and also be good at surface water rescue and also be good at auto X and also be good at all confined of these space. different things, confined space, rope. It's hard to get the time to do all of that training, especially if you're busy and you're running calls all the time. 
I like the idea of the county-based departments where you can have specialized disciplines provided to each station. So, you know, station A does trench and station B does rope and confined space and station C does water or whatever. But obviously you have to take into consideration the disciplines that need fast response. So we can't have someone specialize in firefighting. That's a 20-minute response to, to that other place. But the calls that we can slow down like hazmat and potentially trench rescue is it beneficial to have these departments or these stations take one on which i think the the problem will be ego like you're talking about departments often don't work with each other they don't even call for mutual aid when we need additional tankers or pumps or ladders or whatever But if you do it and you get that mentality out, it might be hard at first for the people who have been around a long time. But if you can start, then it's going to get everyone working together. And if we do the odd training night together or whatever, we're starting to realize that they're the exact same people we are. They're just people with a different boundary. You get them working together and help start helping each other. And it doesn't mean... The other stations can't be trained in that discipline, but maybe a lower level. You don't focus on that as much. So one department does trench or one station does trench. The other support trucks are coming to help and they have a bit of an understanding, but the crew that's already there is going to be the ones running the call and and getting into the the hot zones or whatever. I think there would be so much benefit for that because we just, we can't, often can't do it all. You can't do it all on your own. With the firefighters, like you said, I think there's definitely benefit to being trained in all different disciplines, but really focusing on what you need to be able to provide. So I think what we're talking about here is like there's a reason why in the States they have trucks and engines and rescues. And you're a truckie or you're an engine guy or girl or you're on the rescue because of exactly what we're talking about, task or um, information saturation. Yeah. And it's good to get exposure to everything, especially if you're doing a shift change or duty exchange, they need you over there. So you have to have at least a foundation of knowledge. One of the benefits I came to recently of specializing would be, there may be a very, very few people that would be, and I wouldn't count myself in this group, (laughs) that everything they touch in firefighting, they're going to be really good at. I'm just, that's not me. No, but there are a few of those. There are, right? But (laughs) But they're, they're, they're rare. They're rare. So that being said, for people that would struggle with even a few skills, there's that extreme too, right? So people that are just naturally gifted, like, and then you have people that are really struggling with even a couple skills. And very often the people that are really struggling and can't be good across the board, even with the basics, they get slammed really hard, right? With they don't, they don't deserve this job. They shouldn't be here. If you were to specialize and say they were really, really good and a really great engineer, they would feel better at their job. Oh, for sure. Everyone would love them because they're really great at their job. They bring something huge to the team. Right, because they're really good at that one thing and not expected like, well, you suck at these 15 things. It's like, well, I can't take on 15 things. Right, but I can learn my district and learn to run this pump really well. Right, so that's my job. And then, so they're happier and everyone else is happier and the culture's better. I haven't experienced a department where everything's specialized. So, I mean, I'm sure guys in the States are rolling their eyes going, it doesn't work either, but (laughs) maybe that's the case. I'm going to acknowledge that right now. I'm speaking from a place of like- But is it better? But is it it better? Right. So I feel like it would even solve that problem where culturally people would be much happier and everyone would be happier with each other as a whole if we were allowed to specialize and be where we deserve to be. Yeah. Or want to be. I agree. 
the challenging part would be, is everyone going to want the same job? Is it based on what you request or is there a mix of what you request and where the chiefs or the officers decide to put you based on your talent or, or is there tests involved where you have to prove that you're that good at those skills and they break it down that way? So I, I don't see why it can't be a thing. Again, logistically, I think it just adds more on the plate, but... Is it any more logistically difficult than it is right now? Right, exactly. So Especially if the job's not getting done. Right, so is it any harm in trying it? No, for sure. Right. And it kind of goes back, I know it's a little bit off topic, but what we were talking about with county-based fire departments, should it be more of a a radius on a map where you put the station in the middle and you go, like one of my stations, I can't see, I can see a car accident, but it's not our call. Someone's coming from 10 minutes in, 15 minutes in. Well, that's not beneficial to the people who are potentially trapped in that car. Being wary of boundaries for stations, you mean? Yeah, stations and apartments and whatnot. But it kind of relates a little bit to having these specialized skills that you're that you're good at. So what you're speaking to is how do you decide boundaries around stations for response times? Yeah. So if your department is right on the border of another department, but they're a 15-minute response and you're a three-minute response, well, why aren't you going just Into because their it's area. not your municipality? And why don't we want them to? Because taxes. Because of taxes. <laughs> yeah, because of taxes and fighting over money. and It's almost a different version of when fire fighting started and they had the insurance shields on the doors. And right, they were, well, yeah, they're fighting exactly. For, they're fighting Which for calls. I, I and, think it's still a thing in is the it? U.S. Yeah, yeah I okay. think some states or some right. municipalities still run that yeah. way. So we're adding people dynamics and economics into the mix, which right. fucks it all up. <laughs> Right. Yeah, exactly. And again, the big a big thing is the budget. You don't have the budget to get this equipment or that training for it, then but why why are we not working together? And these different departments, okay, yeah, we can't we can't afford all of these things in this training, but you can do this and we can do this and we can help each other. And even with industry, there are so many industries that have a huge budget and they come to us and they get they learn all these these different disciplines, but it's just for a mine or it's just for a power plant. If something happens to go wrong, which something probably doesn't usually go wrong, but they have the money to send. So why don't the municipalities and industry work together and help each other out? Speaking of task saturation, specializing, you know, ideal world, let's play magic wand for a second here. So you teach a lot of things at the academy. I'm sure you don't love everything equally. Let's wave a magic wand for a moment. If you had to specialize, like if you had to, like when I come into work, these are the things that I would love to do every single day and nothing but. Do you have it in your head? Like, what would you choose? Uh, yeah, fly fire for sure. and Or even as a firefighter, like engine, truck, rescue, oh, mix. For me? Like, if you had to come into work every day. Right, okay. And Sorry. you had to do something every day, what would your ideal role be if you had to, like, your own responsibilities? I would probably pick rescue. I like the tech rescue so you would do like what we're adding all the tech stuff. So all the tech rescue and auto X. And so if you had to fine tune it. Yeah. I love, I love technical, uh, technical rescue disciplines. I also like that they typically get to go to more fires or depending on the department, of course. But I do, I love, I love the idea that, I mean, I love it all. I love, I love going in with a line. I love the truck work stuff. And that's kind of where I'm lucky on the department I'm on. It's all three of those trucks in one. So we don't have a ladder on our truck, but we're doing trucky things. We're doing engine things. We're doing squad things. Like the amount of equipment we have on our rig is insane because we're the only truck. So pretty fortunate to kind of get the best of all, all three of those worlds. 
But even if you love everything across the board, you would choose the rescue stuff. Yeah, I think so. I love, I love, I mean, I love going into fires more than anything. That's definitely well, my, now you're, but now you're my, an engine guy. Yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I also love searching off of a hose line and just doing search. Do you think there would be benefit in doing a number of years in each d- discipline? I think so because of duty exchanges and shift trades and stuff like that. There's a very good chance you're going to end up on one of those trucks. So even if you did a few years on each of the rig, then you have that foundation of what it does. But like you were saying, there's benefit to really honing your skills on the certain truck that you, you end up on. It's a tough one. Like I've heard it used to be really difficult to get onto a rescue. You had to be the top firefighters of the city. And now someone who's been on for a year or two is going to that truck because people don't want the responsibility. And with the generation of new firefighters that are coming in and they don't really care, it's not necessarily about the job. There is more of that, yeah. Yeah. Do you have any desire to move up and promote? Are you good where you're at? I like where I'm at for sure. I'm Yeah, I'm acting, which I do enjoy. I do enjoy the challenge when I'm acting. It's definitely a different mindset going into work. Nothing beats back of the truck. I'd rather, I'd rather be in the back of the truck, but I do like the idea of, of moving up potentially. Would you be happy with just acting for the rest of your career once in a while here and there and not making the shift completely? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I would like to be a captain one day and get a lot of people who say, oh yeah, no, never going to promote, never going to promote. And then as soon as the opportunity comes, they jump on it, which is, which is fine, but sure. I don't want to sit here and lie and act like I don't want to be a captain one day because I think I do. I love the back of the truck. I love working. So would a lieutenant position be ideal? We don't have lieutenants, but... Right, but if you had your pick. Yeah, I guess it depends on what the role of a lieutenant is, which I'm not overly familiar with. Yeah, acting's fun. Best of both worlds. I like organizing. I like going in and setting up training, and I don't like reports and doing paperwork, but it's part of it. Let's wrap up with maybe a message to people that are considering getting into the job. They're going to be coming into a boot camp. You've seen a lot of boot camps and you've seen a lot of people. Can you give me or give them some idea of mindset, approach, attitude? I mean, I, we can hit the highlights of like, you know, have a good work ethic. And, but are there certain things that you're seeing as problems, common problems and people that thrive? Are there unique things that these people are doing or the way they approach things? I'm trying to dig like some nuggets out of you to pass on to people that are considering coming to a boot camp and how they can best get the most out of themselves and the experience. Yeah, I guess making sure that this is the right job for you. Because a lot of people, you can, it's pretty evident when they're in the boot camp that, I, do you really want to be here? Like when you ask someone, hey, do you want to cut another car? No, no, it's time. Let's, let's go back. Or we had a boot camp one time where it was like, well, we're going to, we have some extra time. So we're going to do some extra live fire tomorrow. And they're like, or no, sorry, that's not what happened. They came up and asked if all the JPRs were done. So can we just study tomorrow instead of doing the extra live fire? I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, this is the most fun part. You should be so excited about it. And we do have the odd student that comes through that on the first day or f- first couple of days go, you know what, this isn't for me. And I have so much respect for that. It's like, I don't like being uncomfortable in this gear and in these confined spaces and so many people recognize that and they just push through anyway. And maybe they can go and practice that more and get to a point where they're comfortable with it. But yeah, just knowing that the job is not working seven days a month 
and taking your own initiative to become better, like all the things that we talked about personally, that will make you a better firefighter, give you better brain capacity, give you better better strength or whatever. Or if you think back to specific students that really nailed it, or you know right away, I guess there'd be categories, right? I'm going to try, I'm always trying to categorize things. Right. So you have the people that are naturals. You're like, if maybe they don't want to do it, they're natural, the job, maybe they choose not to do it, but you could have your naturals. And then do you see this? I guess that's what I'm asking. Do you see this where you see people like they're natural, they've got it, whatever oh, yeah. it is, they have it. Yeah. For and sure. then there's people that, you know, can have it if they work for it. And then, you know, there's people that will never have it no matter how hard they work. Yeah, for it. 100%. Do you, you see this play out? Yeah, for sure. Okay. And unfortunately, a lot of the times, I mean, it depends on the boot camp and it depends on the officer that we assign. We, we run it very similar to how a firehouse works. And that's what we kind of try to do. And if they have a good captain, that can make a huge difference, right? You have that proper leader, it can make a huge difference in the people who maybe wouldn't have been as good at it, but now they're, they have more drive and they... They understand things a little bit better just based off this other student who paid the same amount of money as they did because they have some military experience or they're, you know, ex-police that come through or whatever the case is. That's kind of what we try and do at the school because we can't train you to be a great firefighter, right? We only have two weeks, three weeks. The instructors that come in that teach the passion, that show the passion is what fires them up to go, okay, yeah, I have to it's the mentality more than it is the skills. And some people, yeah, don't necessarily have the skills and some people have the skills right away. They don't, you don't have to show them at all, but getting that mentality that I got to work for this, I have to be open-minded, I have to be passionate and I have to, I have to, to earn this is something beneficial that we try and do. And the right students recognize that and they, they try and get every extra little bit of thing out of it. And that's, yeah, that's what we always say to them is, you paid a lot of money to be here. Get as much out of this program as you possibly can. Talk to the instructors on lunch and after and ask them questions and stay in contact. And some people do for sure. You're having people come back to you and say once they got on or... Yeah, the people that come back and volunteer, they just love being there. They just want to be around it. And it's, I don't know, I don't, I don't have an ex exact percentage, but five to 10%, it's a, it's a pretty low number, but we make it pretty clear. Come back anytime and... A lot of times works or turns into to work opportunities for them doing maintenance stuff. And sure. It's just, a proximity thing too, yeah. I'm sure, for people. Right? Of course it is, right? Yeah. yeah, 100%. So, I mean, if even if you're having 5% given proximity, that's crazy. Yeah. That's a really high, yeah, that's some a high people percentage. Are, drive like three or four or five hours to come and volunteer for a few days. Amazing. So, it's it's great, right? But well, it's great for you to verbalize that that's even an opportunity. It's yeah. A, it's a, and I think there's these opportunities, not just with us, right? You can find these things, local departments and stuff where, hey, can we come in and just wash the trucks? You hear those stories and that's not always an option because of, again, liability and whatnot. So the chiefs may not allow it, but maybe, but small, maybe some smaller do. departments might still have right. that. Or right? come in, yeah, come give us a hand at the boot drive. There's opportunities everywhere. How creative are you to go and find them? It's great that we had a second opportunity. There'll be more in the future. Like, it's just always good to sit down with you and just have this one-on-one -on -one time like in the studio and for us to talk. Because we're both so busy, it's really a, an amazing thing we, when we can both sit down and we can talk together. Yeah, man. Well, I really appreciate you having me on and thanks for everything you do for the fire service. A lot of great podcasts, so it's a huge benefit to everyone.